Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's show, we are counting down the top 10 episodes of the Investor Lab for 2022. And how did we get to the top 10? Well, they are the most listened to, the most downloaded, the ones effectively where people like you have voted with their feet, or should I say their ears and their eyes to let us know which ones were the best episodes for this year. So we're going to go through and we're going to have some snippets and some snapshots of our top 10 best episodes to recap on the year before we move in to the festive season. So counting down from number 10, we have is now a good time to buy an investment property. Following that, and number nine, we have property investing in a self-managed super fund with Jeremy Yarnazelli. Then at number eight, we have is the property market crashing with Charlie and Grant. Number seven is how to tackle rising interest rates in your property portfolio. Number six, property investment finance in 2022, what you need to know. Number five, buying property in the current market with Tim Keating. Number four, what happens if I buy a property and the market crashes? A QA with myself and Gabby. Number three, how two properties in seven months transform this family's future. Number two, property market predictions with Terry Ryder. And number one, should I pay down my debt? It has been a huge year. And I just want to say on behalf of me and the rest of the team behind uh, the Invest Lab, I just want to say a massive thank you. It's been a huge year for the podcast. We've seen our um, our listenership grow massively exponentially over the year. And that just, I just want to say thanks. I'm very grateful for everyone who tunes into the show. And if that is you, and if you have shared this with somebody else and helped to spread the word, then I'm, I'm exceptionally grateful. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. Let's recap the year and I'll see you on the inside. there's time and place for everything like you said about like success like there is a lot of people that for success to them it's like debt like i want to be debt free i you know want to have like no debts no loans nothing i want to be completely paid off which is awesome but there's a time and a place to have that as a priority particularly obviously when you're building a property portfolio you know like if you think that you can buy a property pay that down 100% and then buy another one and pay that down 100%, you'll never really get anywhere with that. Like you need yeah. to use the tools available, which includes loans and debt. Like debt is a tool yeah. in this space, using that to propel your strategy forward rather than just thinking, oh, I need to reduce it, reduce it, reduce it. Be aware of it. Yeah. But understand that if you are buying properties, it's not usually the best focus early on. Well, it's a zero-sum game versus an infinite game, right? Mm. So a zero-sum game in the context of like, I'm going to buy one house and pay it off and one of or two houses or three houses, and I'm just going to focus on paying down the debt. That is, an, that is by definition, finite, right? You are saying, I am going to draw the edges of the board, whatever that be, one, two, three, four, five properties, whatever it might be. I'm going to draw the edges of the map and then I'm just going to color in the map, right? And that is a finite game, right? That is a zero-sum game. It means you're going to get to X and that is it. Boom, done, complete. Versus playing an infinite game, right? And an infinite game is infinitely more interesting. Now, how do you get an infinite return on your money? Not a 100% return on capital, not a 500%, not a 1,000, not 10,000, not a million percent, an infinite return on capital. How do you think you do that? That's a tease. You're teasing. I am teasing, but this is true, right? <laughs> the way that you do that is with debt, hmm. right? 
So let's say you let's say you buy a property, and let's just for very mud mouths here today, guys. Right. So let's say you buy a property with you know a ten percent um, deposit, mm-hmm. and let's just say let's just say it's twenty percent costs all, all in. Right. Once you've got all the purchasing costs and all of that kind of stuff, let's say you got twenty percent total capital into a property. Let's let's let's, let's do some maths. Right. Five hundred thousand dollar property, twenty percent all. That's all the cash you put into it is a hundred grand. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Now, let's just say that property goes up to $600,000, right? Goes up and go to $600,000. If you then refinance, i.e. apply more debt to that property to take out that $100,000, right? You're essentially, you've got no money left in that deal. Zero dollars in the deal. You've got no money left in the deal. Mm. And so what that means is you've, if you've got no money left in the deal, but you still own the asset, Every single cent that that is that that asset makes from that point onwards is an infinite return, right? Because mm-hmm. like you're making money off zero capital, zero residual capital contribution, right? So you can create an infinite return. It is like wild, and then you can just do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You've released a, r- a report recently that is that I think is going to start to do a little bit of that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the price predictor index? Yeah, I really love this report that we produce. It's kind of, um, you know, unique as an overused word, but no one else is doing a report like this because there's this obsession with what's happening with median prices. And median prices are interesting. They tell us what's happened in the recent past. Um, But we think that this report uh, is a forward indicator which tells us what might happen with prices in the near future because we look at sales volumes and we believe that, the patterns with sales activity are a forward indicator of what might happen with prices. So in simple terms, if sales activity is rising, rising, rising in allocation, the prices will react to that and rise, and it works in reverse as well. So what we've seen in this new winter edition of the Price Predictor Index, there's there's one big exception to the general rule. Most parts of Australia, sales activity is still pretty strong, in fact, very strong in most, but Sydney is the exception. in the second half of last year, we saw a pattern where Sydney sales activity was starting to fall away. And in the first quarter of this year, there was a dramatic drop in sales activity in Sydney. And then we're now starting to see that show up in some of the price data where we're starting to see some evidence of prices falling in some parts of the Sydney market. So that's what we do with this report. We look at every town and suburb in the country, what's happening with sales activity. And um, we construct this report where we categorise markets as either rising or plateauing or declining or consistency markets. Some markets just are just very level, no matter what's going on in the wider economy or the, the broader property market. And it's um, a good forward indicator of what might happen in prices in all those places. Yeah, so let's, so let's talk about Sydney for a minute because you said that that's the one exception, that's the one major uh, exception to, to, the, the, to the data. Is that fair? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and what's what's I was going to ask what's the what's the you know you, you said that property um, sales volumes dropped off a little bit earlier in the year and now we're starting to see that come through in the in the price data. Have you kind of thought? Have you had a look into like what the kind of lag is between those two moments, or how yeah. how accurate can you kind of be and go okay if they're going up then at this distance? You know, talk to me about that. Well, this this is the beauty of this report, and this this is where it's valuable for for real estate consumers. The time lag is typically six to nine months. So, you know, we we can see, uh, for example, a big uplift in sales activity, but it doesn't translate immediately into prices. It takes Mm. time for the market to realise that things have changed, and particularly in the other direction. So um, 
Sydney started to, sales activity in Sydney started to, to fall away gradually after the middle of last year. But it was in the first quarter of this year that was a dramatic drop in sales activity. So now we've got a situation where only 26% of Sydney suburbs are actually still got a rising momentum. Mm. Um, and that's the lowest ratio in the entire country by far. And so it's um, so the pattern of decline started, say, nine months ago. Yep. And now we're starting to see evidence, if we can believe the core logic figures, of, of prices falling, although they're not price falling everywhere in Sydney, but the overall median price is starting to drop according to their numbers. Um, but that that time lag between a change in the market as um, measured by sales activity and prices reacting is something that investors can use to their advantage. Fear comes from risk, right? Because you're worried yeah. that something might go wrong. And so the way to manage risk is to get more informed so that you can understand the parameters better. And the more informed you yeah. are, the lower the risk is. It's, it's, yeah, and, yeah. and therefore, it allows you to, to think bigger and, and achieve more. Because you're right, the average, the average punter, you know, is... It, they're, they're the, the, you know, the average punter is the typical kind of like I'm going to buy a house, buy a house in a reservoir or or equivalent, and I'm going to I'm going to pay it off, and then when I'm, you know, forty or fifty years old, it'll be a nice little nest egg or 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 something like that. But then once your mindset shifts, all of a sudden you are thinking, okay, hang on a second, I can have a scalable property portfolio. I can live where I want and do what I want. I can see in the near future probably that I'd be able to buy an entire apartment block, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, what? Yeah. What have you? How's this even happened? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's awesome. Seven months ago, I would not have even thought about stuff like that <laughs> or thought it was possible even. So yeah, it's definitely amazing. And we are just average people. Like we don't earn half a million dollars a year, you know, mm. and we're just about to buy our fourth investment property. Um, so it is definitely doable for everybody. You just have to change that mindset and lose the fear. And, and you know, I think when I told my mum we bought the second one, she had, she said something like, oh, just be careful, you know, you don't want to overreach and blah, 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 um, which is, yeah, fair enough. We, we, we do it smart and we're doing it within our means. But at the same time, by buying all these properties, we're almost safeguarding ourselves because if I was to lose my job, we still have that income coming in from the renters paying off our mortgage, you know, because they're all positively geared. We've got them paying off the mortgage and some. So that and some is income to us, you know what I mean? Um, so we are kind of safeguarding ourselves for if the worst does happen. Yeah, 100%. And I just kind of want to jump in there too, because aside from the fact that you bought the one in Reservoir 12 years ago, you are in the last like seven months, you have seven bought- months. You've bought two properties and you're on your third property. So, yeah. uh, and so basically, aside from the one in Reservoir, that'll, that'll make it four in total. But basically, that's three in three in less than 12 months that you guys are yeah. going for. On, yeah, and you guys are an average family on average kind of salaries with two kids, you know, like, and so yeah. this is wildly, wildly possible for anyone, which is, which is, yeah. Well, I mean, essentially, you know, you, you can get your foot in the door by the first one. We were obviously lucky because we have that equity to, to draw on from Reservoir, which yeah. not everyone would have, but you can definitely, there's a lot of people out there who probably don't realize that they don't have to buy a million dollar property in Sydney or Melbourne or Perth. Um, they can buy a $250,000 property outside that's going to give you a great return mm. um, and also. You know, capital growth on the in the long term, um, and then that can then that snowballs because the bank sees you as a good bet because you're you've bought a property that is giving you positive 
extra income mm. um, and then you take it to them and, and then go, all right, cool, what can I do now? And they're like, well, you, you picked really well this time. We'll give you enough money. Yeah, and to you've buy got a more income one. coming in. So more income yes, coming yes. in. So, exactly. so it's just capacity, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, we would never have guessed that we would be able to buy three places um, seven months ago. But, you know, the bank the bank likes us because we are choosing the, the right properties and we're giving them those numbers. And it, you can't deny the numbers. You go, well, it, you know, capital growth aside, how much, you know, one of our properties has gone up already um you know fifty thousand dollars since we purchased it a month ago yeah or two months ago now other than that you're getting rental income that is paying off the mortgage and they see that and they go well that's a good bet you guys are a good bet let's let's give you more money the thing is when people own shares part of the reason shares are like harrowing is because you can see what the price of those shares are at any given point in time. You're like, they're up, they're down, they're up, they're down. Ah, should I buy it? Should I sell it? Should I buy it? And it gets like, it's pretty anxiety inducing, right? The thing is, yep. is the same thing happens in the property market. Like if you overlay, if you overlay, you know, two graphs, one of, one of like daily property values and one of like daily share values, you're probably going to find they're going to look Similar, they're not going to follow the same patterns, right? But they're going to look similar. The thing is that most people just don't have a measurement a measurement tool to be able to to, to be able to um, visually represent what that looks like for their individual asset at any given point in time, right? So they assume, right? Because they'll they'll usually um, get an assessment point of or a reference point on the value at two very disparate points, right? Apart could be one month, three months, six months, twelve months, and that usually happens when you're like, hey, I wonder what the value of my Houses today, and I'll go speak to a real estate agent, which kind of can work. Or you'll go get a um, speak to your mortgage broker and they'll order a bank fail or something like that. But the mm. thing is, the, the time separation between the moment that you bought it or the last time that you checked and that point could be months, right? If you only check your shares every six months, what do you think the likelihood is that the value would be a, would be higher than your last time you checked it? Generally, pretty good. shares are more volatile. Not an exact, you know, not an exact comparison. Etc. But you get the point, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you could track the value of your asset as as dictated by the emotion in the market on a per minute or a per hour or a per day basis, you'd probably nearly yeah. have a heart attack because you'd see the graph be all over the place like an ECG, right? And that's just how all markets work, right? That is just a fact. And the thing is, that's because value and price are two different things, right? So. Price is dictated by emotion, right? And you see, you see this, you, you see this all the time. It's dictated by consumer sentiment. How much will people pay? They'll pay however much they think is a good thing at the time, based on how they feel, right? <laughs> right, and that's that is, and, and and selling price works the same as buying price. And you know, people think that you can't buy properties that are under market value. It's like, well, you can. You just need to have someone whose perspective on what the price is is different to the perspective of your perspective on what the value is, and yep. also like what an ostensibly a third party perspective on that value would be, like a bank, right? And that's usually based on their emotion or their perspective at the time, right? So, the issue that we face right now, in a general sense, in Australia, is a consumer sentiment problem, right? And so. Like linking into that is really, really interesting, right? Because um, as at the time of recording, consumer sentiment is broadly speaking about the same level as it was during the GFC, right? And it's starting to get pretty close to what it was in April 2020, right? Right after COVID hit, we thought the world was going to end. Anyone who was alive and and kicking and doing stuff and paying attention to the world, what was going on in the GFC, right? That was like, holy smokes, you know, the entire, you know, 
monetary and financial system as we know it. The whole basis of capitalism is about to implode. We're going to be entering into a new world order. People are thinking we're going to move to an agrarian utopia and it's all going to... Like, we literally didn't know what the future looked like, right? That's, that was the state of mind, psychology, consumer sentiment back in the GFC, right? And it's almost the same level of confusion, doubt, and uncertainty as it is today. But the facts don't support it. At least during the GFC, there was like some like legitimate stuff going on, right? There's some legitimate actual problems. Those problems don't exist in the current market that that uh, that there is today. Like look at unemployment, look at look at you know the amount of savings and the investment and all of this kind of stuff that we've talked about already. And so there's an interesting there's an interesting piece right there, right? <laughs> because <laughs> Because if you could go back to April 2020, or if you could go back to whatever, like mid-GFC, when everyone was else was freaking out, and you could go and buy property then, how many properties would you buy? You'd probably buy a ton of them, right? And part of the reason for that is because you would be going against the consensus thinking because you would be able to see the opportunity that other people can't see, right? And so what, what, I want to do, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like peel back the curtain, give people, give people a torch and go, hey, guys, take a look because it isn't what you think it is, right? Right now is not what you think it is. <laughs> and mm. if you are able, if you are able to think against the consensus thinking, you are going to be able to radically advance, asymmetrically advance when other people are contracting, right? So how do you think people should navigate this kind of environment when there's a lot of fear in the market? You've got to have a static mind to deal with a dynamic environment. So when you've got a dynamic mind, you've got a lot of things going on. Lots of different levers are being pulled. Lots of different stresses are being added in. If you get other dynamic circumstances coming your way, you probably won't respond to them very well. So you need to have a static mind where you have sound fundamental bases and reasoning to be able to deal with those external dynamic pressures and changing conditions. So from a real estate perspective, those changing conditions are media hype, interest rate rises, doom and gloom. But from a mindset perspective, we need to work off a principles-based approach. So we buy properties in you have, you have principles that will determine your choices, basically. Mm. Your tactics can change, but your principles remain the same. Let's talk about interest rate rises, right? Because there's there's a lot of talk about um, uh, you know interest rates being uh, increasing sometime in the future in the US. You know the Fed in the US is talking about potentially. I think they're pricing in like four or five interest rate rises this year. All kinds of different stuff, and everyone's going, "Oh, what's going to happen in Australia?" Because in New Zealand, they've done a lot of um, you know uh, economic tightening and uh, financial tightening over there and stuff. So everyone's going, "What's happening in Australia now?" As it stands today, at the time of recording, um, the RBA has said that it's possible. They've gone from saying it is extremely unlikely that there'll be a rate rise in 2022 mm, yep. to it is possible that we're going to see a rate rise in 2022. Now, I would posit that when most people hear rate rise, they think that their interest rates are going to go up by a whole digit. Like, so for example, if it's got a three in front of it, it's going to go to a four in front of it. I think that's psychologically what people think when they hear interest rate rises purely because the human brain is designed to look for, you know, whole numbers and all of that kind of stuff. So let's talk about interest rate rises. What do you think, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think it's going to make things like actually worse? And I'm interested to understand how you think it's going to slow the market down because you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. So like you said, I mean, I think uh, it was a very minimal chance that the RBA was um, going to increase rates in 2022. Um 
sort of leading into the end of last year. But now I think on the back of the, the recent um, job rate or unemployment rates, um, the inflation figures I think were slightly higher than what they anticipated, which makes it a little bit hard to fathom with COVID and, you know, everything going on. So there's been a lot of stimulus from the government to try and obviously increase spending and stuff like that. So the figures could be slightly skewed. Um, but now there's, yeah, I mean, the economists, some economists are talking an interest rate rise middle of the year. The RBA, I think, is being a little bit more cautious. So... Um, and as I mentioned before, I mean, the RBA hasn't actually increased rates for 11, 12 years. Yeah. 2010. So it, it's it's foreign it's foreign talk and foreign, um, you know, foreign to a lot of investors and owner-occupiers out there. So, um, I mean, the RBA met on Tuesday. Obviously, there was no in- increase in interest rates. So I think they're just going to see how it's going to play out for the next few months. Um, yeah. Personally, what do I think? I think there will be a rate rise or a, a rate increase of some capacity um, probably in the second half of the year. Mm. But traditionally, a lot of the economists that I was reading this week, you know, in the past, the RBA would do sort of two or three quick interest rate increases. I personally, I'll be interested to hear your view on this, Goose, because I know you, you study this quite quite closely. I, I'm not an economist, by the way, to my yeah. to our viewers out there, but obviously I'm involved in finance. And You're you know, entitled. Got, everyone's got an opinion, Chris. We've everyone's got our fingers on the pole. Yeah. So, yeah, I personally think, yeah, I think the RBA will increase, you know, 0.25%, potentially some point this year. Um, and then I think they will sit. I think the market then will obviously stall. And why I say that is because a lot of people in the Sydney and you know, the Melbourne, even the Brisbane markets now have got mortgages up to their eyeballs. You know, the average median price, I think, is about one and a half million in Sydney now. So I think, honestly, even a, a small little 0.25% increase, people are going to put the handbrake on and then they're just going to be very cautious for some time. And then I think mm-hmm. we'll start to see inflation come back down within the, um, you know, the RBA bands quite mm-hmm. quickly. So that's my personal opinion. I can't personally see multiple rate rises. I just think with the debt levels going on, with obviously COVID still lingering in the background, there's a lot of unemployment with retail and hospitality and stuff like that. I just think they may do one later this year um, and then it will be a wait and see mentality. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, pretty, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I fully expect that there's going to be a rate rise. There might even be a couple, to be honest. Like, but, I, but the thing is, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, they're going to be quite small, right? So you've got to remember... Correct. You got to remember, they're not going to just jump it up a whole percent. They're going to jump it up incrementally. It could be 0.25 percent. It could be 0.1 percent. You know, like it could be incremental to test the market to see what is to see how that is going to change things, right? And the whole idea is that they want the economy to be firing and burning and just like, well, you know, going off. But they also do need to control headline inflation. Now, as you've said, headline inflation is actually potentially caused um uh, it could still be somewhat temporary not wholly temporary but let's just you know but maybe maybe 30 percent of the inflation that we're seeing is is because we're just suffering from a little bit of indigestion from a whole bunch of stimulus getting pumped down our throats and now it's all trying to work its way through the system we've got supply chain issues we've got all this kind of stuff that's driving prices up but potentially if we get through a little bit of get through a little bit of indigestion we'll see the interest rate the, sorry the inflation rate go up 
potentially potentially come back down a bit. People have got to remember that inflation's good. Like we've been under our inflation targets for a very, very, very long time. You know, like we've been, the the goal is to sit between two to 3% inflation. Over the last bloody 10 years or so, it's been about 1% or something. So we've actually got some catching up to do in terms of inflation. So I don't think inflation's bad, right? That's that's one thing. Um, And I, and I think that, um, that uh, Philip, uh, Philip Lowe uh, is in the, in the same boat. He's seeing that it's potentially just a bit of indigestion. So let's not act too hastily because we do want to see the economy still grow and we want to see that kind of stuff going up. So could, could there be one, two, three, I don't know how many there's going to be, but I do expect that we're going to see some interest rate rises. It's really about going, okay, what does my portfolio need, right? And at times your portfolio is going to need growth, right? And maybe during that, those growth phases as well, you can, you, can, you can stomach a little bit of negative cash flow. Because I would say as well, right? It's not mm. all about cash flow, right? It is all about actually what is going to get you to your goal, right? As much as we, we talk about having you know, cash flow positive properties and everything, that's actually kind of like there's a, bigger, there's a bigger game that is being played. And that is, how do you get to your destination? How do you how do you achieve a life of freedom, choice, and abundance? And what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And so, where I think one where one of the ways I think people can go wrong in this environment is is looking at a property which is ostensibly a great property in a great area, which is going to grow fantastically, which ostensibly still has a really good yield. You know, five you know five five and a half six six and a half seven percent yield or something like that, but may not be cash flow positive. On P and I or or some other factor like that, and therefore people go, well, it's not cash flow positive. Ain't buying that. Thanks, interest rates. It's like, well, yeah. I think you probably need to look pragmatically at what the what the opportunity actually is there. You know, when when the, when the median when the national average um, yield is like two to three percent, right? And you're buying something that's like five and a half to six percent or something like that. It's you've got to remember, like, actually, this is this is a unique opportunity, right? And so the environment has changed short term, that doesn't mean that you should reject good opportunities short term because you should be playing a longer game. Back to the point that I made earlier, that asset that asset may make you 50 grand in a year, but cost you $2,000 in negative cash flow, mm. but you're still going to be $48,000 up, right? And so turning down $48,000 for the sake of two, or turning down $50,000 for the sake of $2,000 is a really bad way to build wealth. Like that just does not make yeah. any sense. But people can get fixated on on short-term metrics without thinking about what the macro environment looks like. Because the other point that we've got to remember is that interest rates won't stay up forever. Historically speaking, they have gone up and they've gone up plenty of times in the past. They've gone up plenty of times in the past and they've gone up a lot in the past. There's been times where they've gone up three, four, five, six, seven percent in a very short period of time, right? And I don't believe we're actually going to go that high, right? But they typically only only go up for like you know between a year and two years. So I'm so which why I'm so confident when I say I don't think we're going to have high interest rates in two years time. Right. So so these things are short term short term situations that people really need to consider. And then you can actually go okay, well, what if that was the opportunity in front of me? If someone said um, it's fairly you know if I or sorry let me rephrase that. If I believed I had a fairly good uh, if I believed it was fairly likely that I would make a significant return over a 12-month period, but it may cost me short-term in cash, um, what would I need to adjust in other parts of my life or in other parts of my portfolio to make that decision still viable? Because I know that the upside is um, is significantly better than the downside risk. And that's how th- I think people should be thinking about it. That comes down to cost of living stuff as well, which we can talk about in a minute. And where are the opportunities over like, I don't know, the next one to two years 
if sort of the recession plays out from a business perspective, but also from sort of a wealth creation perspective, from your opinion, again, not financial advice, I'm curious just to walk Ooh. through this one. Let's throw in some context as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like often I perceive I have a view on what's happening in investing world. Mm. But the reality is I don't spend every day looking at it or digging into data. This is just speculation based on my YouTube feed and the shit talk we have in Slack, Grant. <laughs> so it's like, you know, how, how accurate am I really? Mm. Now, Goose, on the other hand, is like this is something where you're deep in it. Like you're actively participating in the market and have such a unique view compared to everyone else. Like you really are data-driven and not, we'll call it, media-driven. Mm. So your perspective, I'm really looking forward to hearing here. Lay it down. So um, there's... I'm going to talk about property and then, Grant, if I get too deep in property, you can pull me back to some business. <laughs> I'll, I'll grab the fish hook. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the way that I the way I see it playing out, right, is that to to expand to or to continue the same thing of everything I've been saying, affordability is going to be the major major trend. So you got three you got three pillars you got to look for: lifestyle, jobs, and affordability. Right. Everyone needs economic opportunity. Everyone wants to live somewhere where they feel happy and they want to have a good standard of living, and that kind of plays into affordability. Right. So. Where the opportunities lie in the real estate market over the next couple of years is going to be fundamentally driven by that decision, right? So there are other opportunities in other environments, but I think that I think that that's going to kind of under, underpin everything. So how that is going to play out in reality, like in practical terms, is probably going to be um, that the regions are going to continue to outperform uh, outperform most of the capitals. You do have some affordable capitals, right? So. Um, you know, the key to successful investing is to work out where demand is going, go there first and stand in front of it, right? And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the fact that, that Brisbane has been booming, but like the right time to buy there was two years ago, not now, like two to three years ago sort of thing, uh, probably three years ago now. Um, same kind of thing goes with Western Australia market, like that's right on that, right? That's right on that kind of cusp there. And so that, but that plays into that exactly what I was talking about there, right? Lifestyle jobs and affordability. You've got to have, you've got to have all three of those factors. So personally, um, I think that until, uh, well, I actually think that that's going to be a really long trend. You know, I think that there will come a time where it's going to make sense um, to buy back in places like Sydney and stuff like that. But we're probably just going to be a way off yet because it's more volatile. Because you got to you got to remember, Sydney has like largely decoupled from the from the rest of the Australian property market. You know, it zigs when the rest of the country zags. There's a common belief that you know Sydney leads the rest of the country. If Sydney goes up, then if the, nationally there's going to be a boom, and if Sydney goes down nationally, there's going to be a decline. And you know. Once upon a time, that may have been true, but that actually, if we go back to once upon a time when that might have been true, you're actually talking about when the aggregate values were all quite similar, when the Sydney median price in Sydney was not that different to the median price in, I don't know, Perth or in fact in Dubbo or in fact in, you know, Townsville, right? You know, they were, they were much closer together. And then that, that actually then, because that's an extension of what I'm talking about in terms of the affordability piece. Because what's happened is that the Sydney market particularly has become radically decoupled from the rest of the country and to a similar degree, Melbourne and um, and Canberra. But even in Melbourne, so the thing about Sydney is it's, it's become more decoupled than, say, Melbourne. In Melbourne, there are still areas which are performing well, but they are the more affordable areas, right? So you've got to look at that affordability play. And also what's come, what's happening uh, at the moment as well is, is a trend towards um, apartments, which is really interesting, right? Now, I am this is not investment advice and I'm not saying go out and buy apartments, right? Or I'm not even saying go buy in Perth, right? Because there's an, there's an argument to say you might want to get ahead of the curve somewhere else and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but 
you know, you've got to look at these global trends and understand how do people want to live and where do they want to live and why do they want to live there. And then you've got all these other kind of macro factors, which is, you know, mobility and, and stuff like that. With Because more people are able to work from anywhere, there's less focus on working in the office. That actually encourages people to be able to go and seek out the lifestyle opportunities they want. As a general kind of guide or a rule of thumb, like how much does it cost to set up an SMSF? How much does it cost to operate an SMSF? Like, because I know that um, that, that can have an impact for some people as well. Yeah, costs may vary, um, again, yeah. depending on what people want out of their self-managed super fund. But I think if you're establishing a self-managed super fund, you know, you've got to make an allowance of anywhere between, say, three, six, seven or eight grand, depending on the type of strategy that you want to take. Yeah. Financial planners will be involved. Accountants or solicitors will be involved. So there's you know, a, number of, a number of people which are there to help you establish it and make sure that you are doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, when a client comes to me saying, I want to establish an SMSF, well, I'll create a number of roadblocks to make sure that they're going to the right people to get the right answers. Mm. You know, so I'll make sure that they can actually borrow in their self-managed super fund if they're wanting to buy a property. So go chat with the broker first. Make sure that you've got enough contributions and capital to actually facilitate the purchase you're wanting to make. Because if you've got 200000 in super, but you want to buy a $10 million property, well, straight away, the broker will tell you it's, it can't happen. Yeah. Uh, then, I'll send, then I'll send clients to a financial planner to get a statement of advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that financial planner will run through you know, how their existing super fund is going. You know, Their proposed self-managed super fund, are they aware that they might be getting a 7 8 9 10% return in industry? Or they might be getting a 3% return in industry. Do they believe they've got the skills or the people around them to beat that? Um, You know, the time involved with a self-managed super fund, the type of assets they can invest in. So I'll send them to someone so they're getting a really uh, good combination of skills and knowledge. And then from myself, once I've seen, you know, a number of ticks, then we can look at establishing the SMSF and I'll work out, well, what type of investments do they want to be buying? Mm. Um, and then obviously tailor the structure for them so they can complete their investment strategy. Ongoing costs, um, look, that again varies depend on, depending on the complexity of the self-managed super fund. I've got clients where there's multiple properties and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of shares and you know, it could be hundreds and, or thousands of transactions. So you might find the cost of that is, is much higher compared mm. to someone just buying one property. But I would probably say on average that people need to make an allowance of anywhere between two and a half as a low end, all the way up to five or six as a medium end, depending on, again, yeah. what they're Number doing. Number of properties, complexity, personal yeah, situation. Yeah. That's, a good, that's seen, a good general guide. I have seen super funds much, much higher than that um, when they start to enter into pension phase or various different investments. So, you know, I think if you can make an allowance of about 1.8 to 2 or 2.2% as an admin fee of running your super fund based yeah. on your balance, I think that's healthy um, as a bit of a provision. Yeah, that's a that's a good general rule of thumb, and that's kind of all I was after. Like a general rule of thumb, like one point eight to two percent as a kind of operating expense to kind of keep the wheels turning. That's a that's a good that's a good guide. There's a lot of concern about inflation that it might you know that that it's going to get to some crazy amount and all that kind of stuff. But interest rates, mm-hmm. in, inflation is going up to a point now that it needs to be put under control, right? Otherwise, it'll get carried away and people won't be able to afford like price of a cup of coffee will get to 10 bucks and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And we'll have, you know, total societal collapse. In fact, once upon a time, there was a coffee strike um, where all the coffee farmers were not struck, where there was a coffee uh, or all the coffee crops failed or something like that. And it was like a national, like a a global productivity, you know, crisis because nobody nobody could work without their coffee. Uh, So just imagine (laughs) that if coffee got to 10 bucks, you know, like productivity, it collapsed everywhere. 
But the point is, say, interest rates are going up to manage inflation, right? Yep. So we've got inflation because we had COVID and supply chain disruption and then a war in Ukraine, which has caused more supply chain disruption, particularly for energy uh, resources and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the governments have to put up the interest rate in order to um, manage inflation, to control inflation. Okay. So what happens when interest rates go up, right? Now. The specific thing that happens with businesses, right, is the the valuation of businesses goes down, right, which means that people don't want to be invested in those businesses anymore because the reason mum and dad investors in shares, invest in shares is because they want to build their wealth. Mm -hmm. But actually, they're not the biggest cohort of people buying shares. The biggest cohort of people buying shares are institutional investors. And institutional investors are buying shares because they want dividends and yield, right? And the value of a business will always come down to the actual value of the net cash flow in today's today's terms, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that investors think about positioning their capital is where are they going to get the greatest yield on their money, right? Yep. And so, when interest rates are really, really low, which means that uh, if they were to lend the money out or do anything else with their money, they wouldn't get much for it. They have to invest wherever they think they're going to get the better yield. But as mm-hmm. interest rates go up, the cost of capital is higher, i.e. if they're borrowing the money or if they want to lend it out or do these, the cost of capital is higher mm-hmm. and therefore, it's less attractive to have it in businesses which have low margins, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what tends to happen is inflation Inflation pushes up the cost of operating a business, right? So goods and services, wages are going up because, you know, uh, inflation is going up and, and, you know, there's a a low unemployment, all that kind of stuff. So wages are going up, cost of materials is going up in businesses. So margins are getting squeezed in businesses, which Mm. means their actual like cash flow, their productive output, the thing that investors want to pay attention to is smaller and also the cost of capital is going up, right? Yeah. So, therefore, it becomes way less attractive for investors to be in businesses, right? Yeah. So, that is why the share market is performing poorly, right? Mm. So, that's why that's why tech stocks have taken a bit of a hit and all of that kind of stuff because, uh, you know, th- they're concerned about the future value of the cash flows and all of that kind of stuff. But the thing is with property is it behaves extremely differently, <laughs> Hey guys, and that's it. That's the top 10 episodes for 2022. And again, on behalf of everyone here at the Investor Lab, I just want to say a massive thank you for listening, participating and supporting the show. And I can't wait for another few years ahead. Thanks. I'll see you on the next episode.